A king sits by the fire in a peasant's cottage, brooding on the problems of his kingdom. Suddenly, the smell of burning fills the air. The cakes left there by his host have been ruined. The king, of course, is Alfred the Great. But this apocryphal story is just one of many not entirely true tales that have surrounded this Anglo-Saxon monarch through the ages. David Barrow of the University of York suggests that these stories tell us less about the king himself and more about the ideas and constructions of Englishness in the societies that have told them. This podcast was recorded during the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. The story that I'm going to tell is about King Alfred, King Alfred the Great of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Wessex. Uh, Now, Alfred became king of Wessex in 871, and he stayed king until he died in 899. But he also had an incredible historical afterlife, in which he became one of the most important figures in British national history. And I'm going to begin this evening with two quotes. Uh, The first comes from a poem written in 1800 by a gentleman called Joseph Cottle. The poem is called Alfred, an epic poem, and it's intended to celebrate Alfred's role as a great national hero, uh, an appeal to the sensibilities of the early 19th century. Uh, the quote comes just after Alfred has won his great victory at the Battle of Eddington, and his enemy, the Vikings and the Danes, are fleeing down the hill from his soldiers. Alfred turns to his men and he says, Spare, spare the vanquished, Alfred cried. Oh, spare, my subjects, the flying foe. Uh, And it's very important that Alfred does not revel in the military victory, nor the defeat and death of his enemies. Uh, It's a moment that shows Alfred to be a gracious, merciful Christian king uh, with an enlightened attitude towards warfare. All in all, a suitable historical hero uh, for the morals of the time. And the next quote describes the exact same moment, the moment of Alfred's victory at Eddington, except these words come from a contemporary Saxon account of the battle. Is Alfred the same compassionate and merciful figure? Well, no, of course, no, he isn't. Uh, He destroyed the Vikings with great slaughter and pursued those who fled, hacking them down. Now, the first question that may come to mind is, which of these accounts is true? And I think all but the sunniest of idealists would agree that perhaps the second Anglo-Saxon source has the most historical accuracy. But a more interesting and difficult question to answer is, why did Alfred's story change so much between 900 and 1800 to support such a transformation? Because, of course, although the values of society changed enormously between those years, that's no guarantee that the same heroes would be carried through. They could be forgotten, left behind, or condemned for their failure to live up to the new moral standards. So what power did the figure and the story of Alfred have uh, to enable him to uh, enable him to overcome historical evidence and historical common sense and that's the question i hope to answer this evening for although i said i'm going to tell the story of king alfred it's perhaps more true to say that i'm going to tell the story of the story of king alfred about how it changed and developed over the centuries as it was told not only to reflect the changes that occurred in society but also in attempts to shape and reform the society in which the tale was told Uh, And I'm going to do so, try and cram 1,200 years of history into 40 minutes uh, by breaking it up into three stages. Uh, Firstly, I'll take us from Alfred's life himself uh, to the Elizabethan age, to around 1570, uh, 
tracking the changes and developments that occur over those years. Uh, picked, I've picked 1570 because that is the time at which the story of the cakes first enters Alfred's legend. The next stage will focus on my particular century, the 18th century, uh, which, uh, in which there are huge changes for King Alfred, not least his transformation from an uh, elite figure to a more popular public hero. And the final, uh, final stage, I will take Alfred from the 19th century to the present day, uh, checking his decline, perhaps in the 20th century, and round up by looking at the recent television adaptation of Bernard Cornwell's The Last Kingdom. And by the end, I hope to have answered how Alfred became such a popular hero, what issues and events propelled him forward, and what the status of Alfred today might suggest about our own era in history. So this, according to two Saxon sources, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and Bishop Asser's Life of King Alfred, a sort of biography written at the time. Uh, so according to these two sources, this was King Alfred's story. Uh, he was born in the year 849, and according to the Chronicles, he immediately set about proving how extraordinary a man he was going to be. Uh, he was sent to Rome to meet the Pope at the age of five, and he so impressed and inspired the Pope that he declared Alfred to be one day the next leader of his people, despite the fact that Alfred had four older brothers. Nevertheless, bolstered by this success, Alfred returned home and proved his superiority over his siblings once again, this time in a poetry contest instigated by his mother. This, as Asser's Life of Alfred tells us, is what happened. She approached Alfred and his siblings with a new poetry book. And she said to them, whichever child could learn and recite these poems first would win the volume. So Alfred, of course, proving how ambitious and diligent and intelligent he was, took the book away, learned the poems and subsequently won it. As he was growing up, however, Alfred's father, Athelwulf, and subsequently all his older brothers, Athelstan, Athelbald, Athelbert and Athelred, were all suffering and indeed dying at the hands of the Vikings. So the Vikings and the Danes had been assaulting the British Isles for decades, uh, and Northumbria and Mercia had fallen under their sway, leaving Wessex as the, only, as the final kingdom standing uh, against their attacks. Uh, and Alfred fought in battles with his brothers as a prince, but one by one they were all killed, leaving Alfred to become king of Wessex, just as the Pope promised, in 871. So over the next few years, Alfred fought the Vikings. He had a few victories, a few defeats. A lot of the time, he bought them off. But eventually, he couldn't stop them. And in 878, they attacked his court at Chippenham and forced him to flee into exile. And it's at this moment, the moment of exile in Alfred's story, that the episode of the burnt cakes supposedly happened. I say supposedly because it doesn't appear in either of these texts. Um, however, the story goes like this that Alfred, lost alone in the woods, uh, hunted by his enemies, found safety with a shepherd and his wife in their cottage. Uh, he was in disguise as a servant, and he uh, was one day asked by the shepherd's wife to watch some cakes that were cooking by the fire. But Alfred, who was consumed with worry for his kingdom and his people, absent-mindedly let the cakes burn. And when the woman returned, she berated Alfred for his negligence, of course not knowing that he was the king. But it was a story to show how Alfred could stay silent and humble uh, and sort of show that nobody was too important to be castigated for their mistakes. Uh, so, as I said, this story was not told in the Saxon Chronicles, but I'll explain shortly where it came from. Uh, 
But to return to the chronicles for now, uh, in the marshes of Athelney, where Alfred was in exile, uh, he managed to gather some supporters fighting a guerrilla warfare. He built a fort to defend himself and began to counterattack them, uh, counterattack the Vikings, and he did so at a huge battle at Eddington later that year in 878. And he won the battle and halted Viking progression into Wessex. Now, Alfred's success didn't end with military victory. His reinvigorated reign gave him greater, greater power than any other leader in the British Isles, and he immediately set about reforming his kingdom. He fortified his towns, constructed defences around the border of his lands. He increased the naval forces, uh, innovations in boat design and boat numbers uh, and naval tactics. He also set about trying to educate his people uh, and personally translated dozens of Latin texts into Anglo-Saxon and brought the brightest minds in Europe into his court. Alongside this, there were many legal, political uh, reforms and new institutions and least, uh, most of all, Alfred's vision of a united England. And this is when Alfred died. And although Alfred was revered by Saxons after his death, the Norman conquest brought great changes. Medieval society had other heroes. Uh, the King Arthur on the left, stories of the round table of the magic and dragons fitted far more with the uh, uh, notion of romantic chivalry than Alfred's simple, simple tale. Uh, and Geoffrey of Monmouth and Sir Thomas Mallory, of course, immortalised Alfred in great work, uh, immortalised Arthur, forgive me, in great works of literature. And besides, the times weren't right for Alfred either. Uh, medieval British high culture was, of course, overwhelmingly Norman, and Alfred as a Saxon uh, was their traditional enemies. It was also overwhelmingly Catholic, um, and the society looked to other heroes rather than Alfred, uh, and into instruction and philosophical uh, thought from Rome and Europe. So if there was a Saxon hero at the time, it was Edward the Confessor on the right there, who was both king and canonised saint. And of course, William I traced his uh, claim to the throne back to Edward, Edward the Confessor. And that's not to say that Alfred didn't have his champions in the medieval period either. Uh, in 1441, Henry VI attempted to get Alfred canonised as an official saint. However, the Pope rejected the application. Uh, even though this was a failure for Alfred, it sums up quite well in, as a metaphor where he stood at this time. That he did have his champions and there were people who thought he was a great king, but he couldn't quite reach uh, the higher echelons of Catholic society. And so this is how things continued for the next 500 years after the Norman Conquest. It was Rome, saints, Arthur, chivalry, Edward the Confessor, with Alfred languishing in the background. This was until we reached the Elizabethan age uh, and this gentleman, Matthew Parker. Now, he was Elizabeth I's Archbishop of Canterbury and he was put in charge of the great Protestant mission of reclaiming philosophical and spiritual thought back from Rome and Catholicism to a special English identity. And as such, he was a great Anglo-Saxon enthusiast in his personal collection. He held the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, Bishop Asser's Life of Alfred, along with many of the personal translations that Alfred had done. And it proved that this time was far more favourable for Alfred, for the great Protestant mission looked very favourably upon his translation of Latin texts into Anglo-Saxon. It was a perfect symbol of uh, reclaiming English identity. 
And so Parker proceeded to publish an edition of Asser's Life. And not just publish it as a passive editor, but a very creative one as well. Uh, he tweaked words and changed depictions to put across a particular image of Alfred. And when he came across a separate later story about an unspecified Anglo-Saxon king lost in the woods who found home with a shepherd and a shepherdess and burnt some cakes, he thought that this story fitted perfectly with the image of Alfred he was building up. Uh, that text was in what is now called the Annals of St Neots, and Matthew Parker decided that he would just insert it into Bishop Asser's Life of Alfred. No editorial comment, no explanation of where it came from, and it became part of Alfred's story. And it remains one of the most famous tales about him today, which is perhaps a shame, um, because as he said in his appearance in Horrible Histories quite recently, um, I proved to the country I've got what it takes, but all anybody asks though, is it true about the cakes? <laughs> because, as I'm about to show, Alfred meant so much more to Britain and the people in this country. So, I'll now jump ahead to the 18th century where there are huge changes and transformations. And one of the chief reasons why this century was so important for Alfred uh, was the new Hanoverian monarchy. And this is George I, who was invited to become King of England in 1714. And it meant that for the first time since the Anglo-Saxon age, Britain had a, so England had a ruling monarchy uh, with German ancestry. So British writers and historians were very keen to capitalise on this and compare the present with Britain's Anglo-Saxon past. Uh, not least Edmund Gibson, who in his preface to an edited edition of another gentleman's history book, wrote to King George that not only our histories, but our language, our laws, our customs, our names of people and names of places do all abundantly testify that the greatest part of your majesty's subjects here are of Saxon original. Britons were eager to embrace their Saxon past like never before. And the Hanoverians weren't just passive uh, in this identification. Prince Frederick, who was George I's grandson, uh, was very keen to associate himself with Alfred in particular. He commissioned busts of the Anglo-Saxon king for his house and his garden. And he instigated perhaps the most important development for Alfred through history. And this was the play written by James Thompson and David Mallet, with music by Thomas Arne. It was called Alfred, a Mask, and it was first performed in Frederick's Garden in 1740. And the play attempts to connect Frederick and Alfred, both on a personal level, of both kings who experienced uh, moments of outcast, uh, where their uh, ideas were not able to come forward, and also their visions for Britain. George II, who was king at the time, was getting Britain embroiled in unpopular continental wars, whereas Frederick and his supporters thought that Britain should turn away from the continent and out towards the wider world, focus on global trade conducted through the navy and their colonies in America and their new influence in India. And so in the play, Alfred's victory uh, is celebrated by linking it into this vision that Frederick and his supporters had for Britain. Uh, and it's celebrated in what was known at the time as the Ode to Great Britain. And it went, When Britain first at heaven's command arose from out the azure main, this was the charter of the land, and guardian angels sung this strain. Rule Britannia, rule the waves. 
Britons never will be slaves. So Rule Britannia associated today perhaps most with the last night of the proms, the Royal Albert Hall, the British Empire and Victorian pomp, was actually from the early 18th century performed for an outcast prince and his disaffected followers by a gentleman dressed as King Alfred and other actors in Saxon costume. Uh, and as the Oxford scholar Oliver Cox has pointed out, this is not a statement of fact. It isn't Britannia rules the waves, huzzah. It's Britannia rule the waves, it's an instruction. And this was presented as a message, a command through time from Alfred to Frederick and the 18th century Britons to take forward this vision of Britain, go out and rule the waves. It's summed up by the final words of the play uh, that are spoken by the character of the hermit, who says, Britons proceed the subject's deep command, all with your navies, every hostile land. In vain their threats, their armies all in vain. They rule the balanced world, who rule the main. Unfortunately for Frederick and his supporters, however, Frederick died in 1751 and never became king, and he never got to see his vision played out for Britain. But the play he had commissioned, however, went from strength to strength. Uh, it was made a public play in 1745 and again in 1750 to great public and critical acclaim. Rule Britannia in particular seemed to uh, encapsulate the spirit of the people. So for over the next 20 years, it was performed almost a dozen times and was rewritten each time to reflect Alfred's growing popularity and confidence. For example, in the original play, Alfred is tentative. Uh, his visions are based more on hope and wishful thinking. But as the century progressed and Britain's powers grew, uh, there was newfound confidence in Alfred's words and new importance to his speeches. The character of the hermit that I mentioned earlier, who delivered words of wisdom and guidance to Alfred, is removed, and all those lines given instead to King Alfred, and he addresses them out to the audience. The tension of whether Alfred is going to be successful or not, and the misery of his uh, defeat and uh, exile, is instead turned into a prolonged celebration, as the audience know from the start that he will be successful. And Rule Britannia, instead of being placed somewhere towards the end of the play, is moved to the very end, so it becomes a big patriotic climax to the play. And so, by the 1770s, this became a spectacle of British patriotism, and it can be best seen in the 1773 version of the play. Uh, the music, for a start, begins taking on its own importance uh, as it is released as a song sheet as well as the script of the play. Uh, London publishers also allow out uh, uh, song sheets including the words of all the songs so the audience can sing along and also people can take them home and recite uh, and perform the songs in private. Alfred drew huge crowds and important guests who got involved in the display of unbridled patriotism uh, as can be shown in this newspaper account. Uh, from the General Evening Post on Saturday the 9th of October. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Gloucester, that is George III's brother, uh, was present on Saturday evening last at the representation of Alfred at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Lady Bridget L, who at the moment is anonymous, uh, who sat in the same side box with His Royal Highness, was so inspired at the scene of the naval review that she loudly chanted in chorus, Rule Britannia, etc., to the no small satisfaction of the gaping pit beneath. 
It was quite a moment of patriotic display, and Alfred was there as the orchestrator of it all. And what they do with Rule Britannia is also really interesting. For as the cast begin to sing the song, the curtain is pulled back to reveal an enormous stage painting of Portsmouth docks that was painted two years earlier for George III conducting his naval review. That's what it's mentioned there. Um, it's George III going out to examine the troops, examine the ships, um, and is attached with a lot of pomp and ceremony. And it's a very interesting uh, spectacle because that links King Alfred to George III. It links 18, uh, 878 AD to 1773 AD. It turns the Battle of Eddington into the very start of Britain's military and naval supremacy. And for the most enthusiastic of Alfred fans, it shows him as the founder of the navy, the founder of the country, possibly the empire. Alfred became for Britain what Aeneas was to Rome. And so the naval success that Alfred had come to represent was a huge part of his identity. But this was about to receive an enormous challenge. From the 4th of July, 1776, the American colonies declared their independence and Britain found itself at war with their erstwhile countrymen. And America provides a fascinating counter-study to what was happening in Britain. Uh, George Washington, for example, was a great fan of King Alfred. He had a painting of him in his home at Mount Vernon. And Thomas Jefferson even suggested tentatively that the new United States should be rebuilt on Anglo-Saxon principles of governance. They did used to be British after all, and at first at least, there was a shared history that we're still willing to claim as their own. And nothing displays this as well as the Navy, once again. Uh, for the new United States Naval Committee, of which John Adams, the future president, uh, was a member, they needed a new name for the new American flagship. Previously called the Black Prince, they decided to rename it the Alfred which meant for the Americans that their first ever flagship of their navy that was to set out and fight for and define their new republic was named after one of the monarchs of the enemies that they were fighting. And for the British, it was even stranger because Alfred immediately set to work fighting the Royal Navy, which he had supposedly founded. Britons would read in their newspapers of accounts of attacks on their forces undertaken by one, in the name of one of their great historical heroes. But the British Navy responded immediately, and within months a new ship was being built at Chatham Docks. And by the time this ship was launched and named the Alfred, there was an Alfred ship fighting on both sides of the, continent, of the uh, War of Independence. And all this conflict sent the figure of Alfred into something of an identity crisis. For all the things that he, began, uh, that he had become to represent, such as British freedom, naval success, the rule of law, a united English people, and even Britain's constitutional monarchy, were all being challenged and undermined by the Americans. And so the stories of Alfred that come out of this crisis are really fascinating. Uh, one of which is a 1778 play by a gentleman called John Home, which is called Alfred, a Tragedy. And this has a really fascinating take on the disguise myth in Alfred's story. Uh, this was a story that was first introduced to Alfred's myth uh, by William of Malmesbury in the Middle Ages. And it is a story of Alfred disguising himself as a minstrel to sneak into the Danish camp, survey their troops, judge their numbers and their quality, 
Uh, it was a tale that was supposed to show great bravery and selflessness, sacrifice, uh, that country came above all else, uh, not to mention Alfred's own personal tactical cunning. But with the British military being humiliated on the global stage in what Hume believed to be an unnecessary and violent war, he changed this story of Alfred into something deeply personal. He has the Vikings kidnap Alfred's wife, and his undercover mission is purely designed to rescue her. Service to his country is forgotten, and Alfred weeps his way through the play, revealing himself in a second after seconds interrogation, and he comes across as weak and selfish. Now, Holmes' play proved to be a disaster because of this. It only lasted two nights before being shut down, and it earned him some brutal criticism. It has been alleged that the character of Alfred in the tragedy does not agree with the character of Alfred in history, that the hero, the legislator, is degraded to a lover who enters the Danish camp from a private, not a public motive, and acts the part of an imposter. It's very clear that uh, the British public in 1778 have a vision of Alfred, of who he should be and what history defines him to be, and that anybody who doesn't live up to that standard is not worthy of his name. The figure of Alfred, however, survived this crisis, and he actually reveled in the new, united, unabashed and determined patriotism that Britain engaged in after American independence. And it's when some amazing claims begin to be made about Alfred, uh, including that he wrote a doomsday book first before William I came along. Uh, he was the father of the state, the founder of the English constitution. He established juries. Uh, to him, we owe the creation of a naval force. Uh, and the bottom one is my favourite, which says, even the elegancies of life were in his reign brought into this kingdom from the Indies and the Mediterranean. In short, Alfred conducted trade with India and China. And this is a fascinating source for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's uh, written by Sarah Trimmer, uh, and towards the end of the 18th century, we begin to see a big increase in women writing about Alfred, where previously it had been in the realms of elite men. Uh, it's a sign that Alfred is again reaching a brand new audience by this time. And also the book that it's written in, The History of England for Youth, that's a textbook that is meant to be teaching children about English history, and it includes this whopping lie about Alfred trading with India. Uh, there's also at this time as well uh, an increase in historical paintings of Alfred, and one of their favourite depictions is the myth of Alfred and the Pilgrim. Again, it comes from Alfred's time uh, in exile, where running down on low on his food, a pilgrim comes to Alfred and asks to share a loaf of bread. So Alfred, being generous, splits the loaf of bread with the pilgrim. Now this was a, a story that just told to show Alfred's generosity and Christian spirit, but eventually developed that the figure of the pilgrim was actually the spirit of St Cuthbert, buried here of course in Durham, who had been sent to test Alfred's Christian worthiness. And so as soon as this bread was split with the figure of St Cuthbert, he vanished. And all of a sudden, Alfred's supporters returned with arms full of fish from the river. This is one of the great paintings, uh, great painting themes of the 18th century. And now this takes us back into the 19th century, uh, which was really Alfred's apotheosis. There were celebrations and statues, epic literature on nationalistic themes, uh, an overwhelming number of literary productions. It would be impossible for me to discuss them all today. Uh, but one example 
that's particularly good uh, is the inscription on the statue on the left, which is at Alfred's hometown in Wantage, which says, Alfred found learning dead and he restored it. Education neglected and he revived it. The laws powerless and he gave them force. The, land, uh, the church debased and he raised it. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name will live as long as mankind shall respect the past. And it's a really interesting final phrase, respect the past, because what does that mean? A lot of the things that they're celebrating about King Alfred were possibly not true, and a lot of them were just an 18th century invention. Uh, so the 19th century, Victorian age was fantastic for Alfred, and there's a particularly good book written by Joanne Parker called England's Darling that goes into great detail about all these things. It's well worth a read if anybody's interested. Um, however, moving on slowly to the 20th century, and Alfred suddenly becomes slightly less accessible, and people are less willing to ignore the facts of history. Uh, for example, the great empire that, Britta, that Alfred was supposedly the founder of is slowly falling apart, and Britons are less keen to uh, embrace that part of their identity. It's also true that Alfred doesn't quite translate in the same way to modern media as uh, his old nemesis, Arthur was, of course, who became famous in TV, film, and game adaptations. As far as I'm aware, Disney has never tried to make a film about King Alfred. And by the end of the 20th century, Alfred has perhaps reached a new low, uh, and he almost assumed joke status, particularly in relation to the story of the cakes, which has really taken over what a lot of people believe about him. Uh, it's summed up, I think, quite well in this Twitter account of Alfred the Great. So uh, this is Alfie the Great, who I'm delighted to say follows me. Um, and this is quite a nice summing up of Alfred's uh, position in the 20th century. Uh, Rex Anglorum, who, the King of England, of course, a uh, questionable baker, guerrilla swamp combat specialist, uh, god botherer, Latin student, berg builder, Dane basher, and general medieval superhero. So, however, the 21st century is starting to look interesting for Alfred, and there are a few hints that he might be making a bit of a comeback. Uh, there's particularly an increase in scholarly interest in King Alfred, and that's translating into uh, public dissemination as well. Ian Hislop recently did an excellent documentary uh, called Heroes for All Times, in which he compared Alfred and Arthur. Uh, and the education system as well, where Alfred and the Saxons had previously been left rather untaught and neglected uh, in the new reforms to the curriculum, uh, in 2012, Alfred is now one of the very first leaders of the country that children learn about. And whether you agree with the particular definition that is being put forward or not, it's certainly true that Alfred is benefiting from an agenda that pushes British values, whatever they are, once again. However, it's possibly through the sort of ongoing television adaptation of The Last Kingdom, of, of Bernard Cornwell's The Last Kingdom, that Alfred is making uh, his biggest claim to a comeback. And it's with a few reflections on this that'll end my talk. Uh, so, for example, each episode of, of uh, The Last Kingdom has attracted around 1.6 million viewers, uh, which makes it Alfred's largest audience for several decades. It's also reached a worldwide audience as well. It's suggested from people who need something to uh, 
account for their fix for Game of Thrones before the new series comes out. <laughs> uh, and Alfred is obviously magnificently portrayed in that series by David Dawson. Uh, and his image of Alfred that he projects uh, is quite interesting. It's more of a return to the uh, pre-Victorian conception of King Alfred than the hyperbolic, godlike figure. He's a great warrior, a great thinker, intellectually superior and tactically fearsome. But he's also likeable and accessible, uh, a bit like Holmes Alfred, the uh, weeping king who went to rescue his wife. Alfred faces a great deal of suffering, tests of faith, and very difficult decisions. And also, most importantly perhaps, he's not the hero. Um, it's Uhtred, who we're supposed to follow in this story, who is a Saxon Dane character. And Alfred is perhaps just a, a side character. So is Alfred facing a comeback, perhaps, as a television antagonist? Uh, because perhaps we live in an age in which we're more interested in stories of an every man or an every woman, not an elite. Um, and Alfred is no longer the unequivocal national hero that he once was. So finally, I'm going to end my talk with a few comments on the last scene of uh, this most recent series of The Last Kingdom. Um, the plot uh, proved that Odder, uh, Lord Odder tried to save Wessex by going against Alfred's wishes and he was forced to commit suicide. However, he saved Wessex, but Alfred could not forgive him for the betrayal. Now, Uhtred, the main character's voiceover, comments that it will not be written that the Lord Odder saved Wessex, but that is the story I will tell, that he gave his life to save the lives of many and ensured that King Alfred of Wessex became more powerful than ever. Now, this is a clear sign that Alfred is perhaps not our hero. It's a very sinister comment upon the control of history and the power that Alfred had because of his enthusiasm for reading and writing. Uh, because those first two Anglo-Saxon texts that I quoted as the facts of Alfred's life have a debatable impartiality. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which includes the story to Rome and the wars against the Vikings, was almost certainly written in Alfred's kingdom of Wessex, most likely under his influence in his court. And as for Bishop Asser's life of King Alfred, Asser owed a great deal to Alfred. He was his friend even. He was one of the great minds that Alfred summoned from Wales to be part of his court and part of his new re-educating system. So that image in the last kingdom, in the last scene where Alfred stood, st is stood at the front of a room while his scribes write the history of the times and the sinister implication that he is controlling what is going into those texts is perhaps only a little fanciful because the imagery perhaps stands true. It may have been Winston Churchill who said that history will remember him kindly because he intends to write it. But perhaps Alfred was only being slightly less ambiguous when he put in the preface to one of his own translations, I desired to live worthily as long as I lived and to leave after my life to the men who should come after me the memory of me in good works. And it's perhaps up to us to answer the question about that, of whether this is a gracious wish by a benevolent king to be remembered well by his subjects after his death, or a slightly darker attempt by an extremely powerful and extremely clever individual 
to control what his descendants, we here today, believe to be true. And I'll end my talk there, so thank you. <laughs>